As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. Welcome back to another episode of the Malcolm Effect. Joining me are voices you're familiar with, my co-hosts and people I consider teachers and friends, Christian and Deej. We have legend in the building today, none other than Judith Butler. Welcome to the first time to the Malcolm Effect. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. I'm really pleased to be here and to be in conversation with you. It's an absolute honour and pleasure on our part. So we're going to go straight into it, all things gender. Considering the works you have written, what is your assessment of the gender kind of discussions today taking place predominantly in the West? And let's limit our scope to the US and maybe the UK. Yes, well, you know, it is uh, very different in the US and in the UK, I believe, even though we can track some similarities. The It seems clear that in the last... Uh, Decades, the evangelical church in the U.S. has been interested in promoting a, a cultural war against gender, and my sense is that this has now become uh, a key Republican strategy to stoke passions on the right and to recruit people to conservative causes and especially to conservative, if not reactionary or fascist, candidates. I do think that the, in the in the UK, obviously, trans rights and the whole concept of gender has been uh, mocked and maligned by a number of people in power. I mean, I think we saw the debacle in Scotland. We saw the controversy that the Gender Recognition Act has engendered, if I can use that word, uh, throughout the UK. And I believe that the anti-gender movement is uh, predominantly reactionary. It is, of course, upsetting to see how many vocal feminists have joined in the in the exact same rhetoric against gender, producing a deeply problematic alliance between trans-exclusionary feminists and right-wing causes. Maybe we could talk about that more. There is some of that in the U.S. but and in Canada, for sure. But it is, I think, most pronounced in the U.K. during this time, although I did experience something similar in Spain, where feminists were joining with trans-exclusionary feminists were joining with right-wing politicians, if not exactly in explicit alliances, but in the rhetorical strategies they used to try to defeat gender. I guess I would just add that gender stands for many different things today. We're no longer talking about this or that theory of gender or what's your view on gender. Uh, gender stands um, yep. in, a, in a kind of excited way for a number of social movements from abortion rights to trans rights to gay and lesbian marriage. Deej? Thank you for that. I think my next question follows on quite well from this. So thinking about the current conjuncture, thinking about the rise of 
this sort of essentialism, biological essentialism that's being adopted by many feminists. What are some of the challenges and opportunities for queer politics in this current conjuncture? What can we do to resist? How can we resist? Well, in my mind, the most important thing is first to track their strategies and expose them for what they are. And second, to to create alliances that are stronger than the ones that they have. So that means, I would say, especially in the UK, linking various uh, gender studies programs together, as I know LSE Gender Institute has started to do, taking advantage of international allies to understand and, and track the global dimension of the anti-gender movement, what they call anti-gender ideology, and what the right and the and the trans-exclusionary feminists, who are arguably right as well. So nothing is, is more important than forging alliances where, where it has been difficult to do so. You know, I come from an early generation of queer theory where <laughs> queer theory was a critique of identity politics. Um, it's hard to remember that now since queer is for many an identity. I don't oppose that exactly. I mean, if people want to identify that way, that's great. Probably I identify that way if pressed. But queer was a way of saying you don't have to show an identity card to get in the door as long as you're part of an anti-homophobic alliance. And and that the point was not to patrol each other's identities, but rather to join across differences to fight a number of different forms of power that are brutal in explicit or implicit ways. And in our terms today, it means fighting for racial justice and against racial violence. It means uh, fighting for sexual justice and against violence on the basis of sexuality or gender, including sexual violence of all kinds, including sexual harassment. So and, and of course, we have to remember as well that on the right, most people who are against the idea of gender are also against migration. They tend to be European supremacists, white supremacists, that these issues are uh, profoundly linked. And I think Orban perhaps gives us the most crystal clear example of how they are linked, right? The so-called natural family, in his view, consists of a man and a woman in marriage with biological children who are properly Hungarian and or European and who will not taint or impurify the nation. So it's anti-migrant and it's anti-gender, it's anti-queer, it's anti-gay and lesbian marriage, it's anti-access to reproductive technologies for single women or other people who can get pregnant. It's anti-trans rights. It's anti-laws that protect women against domestic battery or violence. These are all linked. And as long as we become either single issue people or identity politics people, we will not be able to ally with one another. Of course, there's a way of thinking about identity as a kind of alliance. Some people are an internal alliance, and they make alliances from that internal complexity. And that's one way of thinking about intersectionality. I'm all in favor of that. But I do think we need to learn again how to make coalitions across differences. We don't have to love each other to fight the same enemies. Thank you so much for that. 
And just sort of following on from your point, I've been thinking because I'm very much engaged with queer circles and I've been thinking about how, especially in the current moment, a lot of queer theory is not read as its historical antagonism towards identity politics, but rather there is a sort of alignment with identity politics, a rigid identity politics in queer spaces now, even so far as policing each other's identities, right? Who gets to be queer? Who gets to be visibly queer? Who gets invisibilized by queerness? And I find that, especially with the younger generation, so much of what I believed was queer politics seems to be completely sort of antagonistic to their current view of queer politics. And I wonder if you had anything to say about the moment that we're in and why we're seeing this attachment to identity politics, especially within queer circles. Well, it's hard for me because I am relatively ancient (laughs) in this regard. I remember writing, (laughs) I remember after Gender Trouble was published in the very late I think very late in 1989, I think it's it's actually, it says 1990, but December 89 was a big month for me. And in the months that follow, people would, would say to me, so, you know, what's your view of queer theory? And I had never heard of queer theory. So Gender Trouble was actually written without any knowledge of queer theory, published about the same time, a little later than Eve Sedgwick's Epistemology of the Closet, and Michael Warner had some publications. There were other other people as well, Teresa de Laretas, who I think coined the term, but we weren't all connected in any kind of movement. And so I I, I like to tell people I came to queer late, uh, <laughs> at least months late, six months late, probably. But it is true that, that something has changed. Young people identify as queer differently. I don't want to condemn that or oppose that because I have a lot to learn from young people and I, I'm trying to listen carefully to see what their concerns are. I wonder whether the more important point is why are so many movements on the left policing themselves and each other in such harsh ways? We are supposed to be at this time critical of the police and policing functions and that's not only clear in the abolition movement, but in the ways in which most social movements have suffered violent repression by police and security forces. We can extend that to think about the violence at the border, the violence in detention camps. So we're, we don't ally with the police. I mean, we we very rarely ally with the police. It's it, it's a it's it's a rare moment, and yet there. Are policing functions that take place uh, on the left where we want to know if somebody really belongs or doesn't belong. Now, look, I'm against fraudulent claims, like if somebody claims to belong to a Native American tribe, for instance, and they absolutely don't, and they are grotesquely capitalizing on a lie in order to advance themselves in a, an academic circle, that's to be condemned, <laughs> right? So there's just no question. Somebody's passing as black who's definitely not black and, you know, trying to profit from that in some way. Well, absolutely, that should be condemned. So I understand that there are times when that's extremely important uh, to call that out and to make uh, clear what's true and what's false. But in general, I feel that sexuality is a complex thing. People, many people are bisexual. Many people live their lives with one partner being a man, another partner being a woman, or being involved with a woman who becomes a man in time. And 
that person then undergoes a complex shift in the conceptualization of sexuality. I think, you know, sexuality shifts a lot it, depending on the histories that form our vocabularies and the trajectory of our lives. So it should be a place of not knowing. It it always is a place of not knowing whether or not we want to acknowledge that. So, but I do think people are policing each other in part because they feel out of control in this world. They fear the destruction of this world. They don't see examples of a moral center or, or they can't find a moral compass. They become the judge that is missing in the world and judgment of each other, which tends to tear social movements apart becomes the only way to gain moral certainty in a otherwise radically uncertain world. But I think we, we need to have a broader discussion on, on where we find the police. We don't just find the police at the border and in the prison, although we surely do. We also find it in our minds and in our relations with others. Absolutely. Christian? Yes, I actually have a question that I think relates to um, your first response to Deej's question. And what struck me is constructing broad alliances. And I kind of had had this question burning since I watched uh, a talk that you gave, and I believe it was at Yale. And uh, I guess I kind of wonder if these various struggles, political struggles in the, in the cultural sphere are wrapped up in a larger issue of anti-intellectualism. Earlier, you had mentioned the evangelical Christian even Evangelical Christians, religious right, being part of waging a religious, a cultural war, sorry. And what struck me about that talk that you gave is that the point was that oftentimes we have these, there's like an anti-gender kind of political movement and that this movement is, it's not necessarily about debates happening within gender studies, but in fact, the political enemies of any sort of progressive gender political movement is people who are committed to not reading, committed to not engaging intellectually. And even in their own religious uh, fervor, they're not even engaging in what one might call a rich hermeneutical tradition within their own religion. So I guess I ask this because I wonder if there is, while there are these struggles to fight domination in various cultural sectors, be it gender, be a gender, race, or whatnot. Is there a larger like anti-intellectual problem that is occurring that presents its own political problem? Does this political problem precede the ones regarding gender, race, et cetera, sexuality, et cetera? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a really good question. And unfortunately, the answer is somewhat complex. I mean, there are obviously both right-wing Catholics and fundamentalist evangelicals who are who read the the Bible in some strict ways, but they they read the Bible with an idea of doctrine in mind. In other words, they don't read the Bible as pointing in several directions at the same time, as raising interesting interpretive problems. They understand their moral strictures to be based in biblical authority. There are many feminist biblical scholars who would contest that. There are queer, gay, lesbian biblical scholars who would contest that for sure. But it has been my experience that if I speak to those who 
are coming out of the evangelical tradition or the Pentecostal tradition, there is a, a skepticism of intellectual life and in particular university life. What happens at universities? Well, some people fear that what happens at universities is that basics, basic Christian values are taken apart and that a moral relativism ensues. And certainly the Vatican has also made that claim about gender studies, although it accepts one version of feminism that holds to, to what they call the complementarity thesis, that is that a man and a woman constitutes the human, that the human is is double. It, it includes man and woman, and that that their conjugal relationship is the consecration of the human itself. The fear that universities are multiplying possibilities or opening up horizons for different formations of gender and sexuality, of intimate association, of kinship, all of this is um, is apparently ter- terrifying at some level and is understood as fraudulent, ideological, and destructive. I mean, I have met people either condemn me or try to pray for me, and I've asked them, well, have you read my work? And one reply that I've heard a couple of times over is, no, I would never read your work. I would never come close to your work. I would never touch the book, as if to read... <laughs> As if to read would be to traffic with the devil or to be contaminated by the word, whatever word might be in there. They don't really want to know. They're they're not interested in basing their opposition on a scholarly argument or coherence or evidence or demonstration, logic. None of that is important. And I also think, though, that there are some, and let's remember that the Vatican also has a host of intellectuals who have helped it over the years, Ratzinger in particular, when he was Pope Benedict, uh, he assembled a lot of right-wing theologians who were very scholarly, and he himself came out of a scholarly tradition. And those were reactionary scholars in universities and in theological schools who were telling him, this is what gender is, and you should be opposing it, and here are your five reasons. They are destroying Christian doctrine. They, they will destroy the family. They'll destroy the concept of man and even the ideal of civilization. But it is true that some of the, you know, among, among trans-exclusionary feminists, I mean, I see that Kathleen Stock apparently succeeded in giving a talk at Oxford recently. I mean, she has stepped down from her position at Sussex, but she's an intellectual. She's a scholar. She understands herself to be philosophers. So these are people who are using academic language and institutions to promote their critique of gender. They're not exactly anti-academic, but they are against a form of critical theory, a form of scholarship that makes use of social construction, which I think they badly misunderstand. They construe it as pure artifice rather than a lived historical reality that we embody. So, I mean, it's complex. Like, where are we looking at the anti-gender movement? Are we looking to the Vatican? Are we looking to Kathleen Stock? They won't be the exact same. But And if we're looking at Putin, we would expect him to be different from J.K. Rowling, but he apparently loves what she says, even though she has refused to make an alliance with him, which was wise. But you know it's a it's a complex map, so we have to we have to figure out where we are when we answer that question. 
No, thank you very much for actually taking it to that direction, because I think that is kind of like the follow up of where is important, because, you know, even as you pointed right there, there is scholarship, there is right wing scholarship that is somewhat, I, I don't want to say rigorous, but somewhat, you know, intellectual and, you know, scholarly institutions become centers of power to proliferate reactionary regressive or traditional viewpoints, ideologies, and politics around gender and and race. So then I guess like what kind of centers uh, or what kind of places do you think are are most important? Is the academy something to be taken from the right when it is when it is being wielded by the right? Are how do we promote healthy intellectual and culturally progressive discourse outside of the academy as well. I mean, the, the even the, we're, one of the problems that we're facing now in the States is like, uh, you know, all these book bannings. What are, what are kind of like, where are the sites of struggle? What are the most important sites of struggle when it comes to destroying these hierarchies, these various hierarchies and various uh, p- uh, portions of social life? Yes. Well, first of all, <laughs> it's an odd moment for universities and particular for critical theory and open inquiry within universities. Uh, we've seen what Governor DeSantis did with, uh, with the, the new college in, in Florida, denying people tenure, stacking the board with reactionary people who will mandate uh, conservative doctrine in the classroom. That's terrifying. That's, that's authoritarian control, and that's the shutting down of open intellectual inquiry. I do believe that those of us who work in universities and who care about the humanities or care about languages or care about global studies or ethnic studies or Africana studies, gender studies, all of it, ethnic studies is embattled here in California as I speak, we need both to defend our place in the university and to speak to larger publics about what we do and why we do it. So I'm tempted to go back to a Marxist idea of mediation. We need to expand the, the levels of mediation. We need both to produce knowledge within universities, but we need to be engaged in communities and in public worlds to explain what we do, but also to respond to what is happening in the world and to show that we are socially engaged and that we care about the, the future of the earth and the, the future of, of society. I, I think we, we need the walls of the university to become more porous, which means that we need to realize that the communities we serve are also inside the university and that we need to be responsive to what people are thinking about and what they're suffering and what they're longing for. We need to speak to those, those needs, those passions. But also in the case of DeSantis here or the very stupid things that Rishi Sunak says there about gender or trans people, we need, we need to make our views known at every level of society and also to work with sectors outside the university, throughout civil society, including religious institutions, to make clear what the values are that we care about and what kind of world we're trying to make, and to and to invite them to join us. The, the point is not to take over a university and make it left. 
<laughs> or to take down a university that has become right. We need open inquiry as a as a value. We need open debate. We need strong a strong understanding of what is happening. Even this podcast, the questions you're asking me, you're not coming forward with a dogma or a doctrine and asking if I agree or disagree. You're opening up questions that are important to us because we're living in a in a shared historical time and we're we're disoriented within this world. <laughs> um, Absolutely. Right. So these kinds of conversations in which we can take the time, the patient, have the patience to turn something over and to see where we're living and who's suffering and what we want, how we can make a world that's that's more just, that's that has that has greater commitment to equality, that understands equality in new ways, that has a greater commitment to collective freedoms, that knows how to establish the limit of personal and market freedoms. All of this is is crucial right now. I just wanted to sort of speak to the point you made about how we have to, as academics, sort of be in conversation with people outside of academia. And it just reminds me of how so much of how the right puts forward a left position in the public domain is representative of such regressive misunderstandings. But that discourse becomes the public discourse, right? That discourse becomes what people think critical work is. The type of false genealogies that are strung up to create a moral panic then become fixed within the public domain, become fixed within public discourse. And it reminds me of a conversation I had with someone where they had this completely ridiculous view of what critical theory was and its relationship with critical race theory, for example, because they had gotten that from right-wing news, because right-wing news yeah. has always been kind of the, the disseminator of our information. And it makes me think about, you know, how as academics, we have somewhat allowed ourselves to become cushioned by a form of elitism that means that we don't, we no longer, or as much as we should, do the work of engaging the public with our knowledge, engaging the public with our thesis. You know, I remember someone actually asked me when I said I was going to be speaking to Judith Butler, oh, is the, is, is Judith Butler the person who thinks that like sex isn't real? And I was like, sorry, what? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I was like, where did you get this from? I was like, well, they think that, you know, gender is like performance. And I'm like, well, I don't think that they're saying it's not real though. Correct. And that tells us something about the way the public is reaching or is accessing critical information. And I suppose my question then becomes, whilst, yes, things like this podcast are incredibly helpful, there are some parts of our academic discourse that are quite dense, right, that require careful study, they require careful dialogue and careful consideration. But the public domain as such, and this speaks to Christian's point of, of, about anti-intellectualism, people are so worn down by the day-to-day by their day-to-day lives. People don't have the time to engage oftentimes. So how do we disseminate our information in a way that's not only accessible but in some forms digestible for the public? Well, Khadija, I think you you raise a super important question here. Many academics are live in fear of being judged by other academics and if they put something out in public that is more popular, it looks like they're not engaging in rigorous debate or scholarly inquiry of a certain standard or you know and and I I know many academics who have locked themselves in the academy because they don't want to speak in a way that might be understood as unrigorous or unprofessional 
we should maybe rethink uh, what we mean by careful thought and speech and even what our professional obligations are. And, and in my view, transmitting what we do to a broader public has now become a professional and political obligation, precisely for the reason that you mention. We are regarded sometimes as elitists who are involved in obscurantist discourse or completely self-referential, uh, worried about our, our salaries and our pensions and our standing, our, 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 our human capital, our brand in the world. And, you know, you can be radical chic and never once engage in any social movement, right? You say the right things, you publish in the right places, you ally through signaling, but you're never on the line. And you certainly don't, if you are such a person, engage in social movements where your discourse is going to have to change. You're going to, you're going to be speaking to different people. They're going to be speaking to you and you're going to have to find a common ground. And sometimes that means engaging in acts of, of uh, ordinary translation, changing registers, listening to idioms that are not your own, figuring out how other people make meaning through what language, through what forms, through what images and sounds, and becoming more responsive to the publics we are supposed to be serving as teachers and, and, and intellectuals. I do worry that class enters into the issue. We are the more we become difficult to understand for a broader public, the more they, when they get wind of what we're doing, feel that we are elitist or, or, self, or selfish, self-involved exclusively. So um, I'm not saying we need to change the way we work academically. I, I can still write what I write for academic purposes, but I also need to have some other functions in this world. I need to be moving out into the world and working with different people and engaging, as I try to do with social movements, both locally and globally, that teach me what I need to know and maybe bend my language in some new ways. Thank you. Yeah. No, thank you. Speaking about open to inquiry, a question I have here, given that liberalism purports itself to be to valorize the radical autonomy of the individual, and it's quite a pivot away from what we've been previously speaking about. However, I, my question becomes here, what is it about gender that becomes so antagonistic to the liberal order in which we live in today? Because you can't, and why is such a rallying call that almost different sections of society seem to get behind? Well, let's remember that some people understand gender as an expression of radical personal liberty. Like I'm yeah. going to create myself and I can create myself in whatever way I wish. And, and you know, we could say that that idea of, of radical individual freedom comes out of liberalism, but others say it's neoliberal in the sense that we produce ourselves as plastic creatures who gain value in the in the world through a certain kind of self-branding or self-promotion. And I think that that co-optation, if I may say, of my own theory of performativity was one that I, I didn't anticipate well, certainly not the neoliberal one. But there is uh, the possibility of, of, of turning gender in that direction and just making it into a matter of free self-styling or self-creation. I think 
in fact, to the degree that gender involves freedom, it involves collective freedom, since those who don't comply with established gender norms suffer marginalization, violence, stigmatization, and very often unequal wages and uh, exclusion from different kinds of jobs and different kinds of public possibilities, ways of, of living or participating in public life. So I think it's really important that that we reconstruct freedom as a collective freedom and see what that means in light of gender. But let's remember that other people see gender as uh, as socially constructed, and that means that we are nothing. We're determined by social norms. We're determined by social powers. We have no freedom. So there are two very different ways of understanding gender, both of which are maybe symptomatic of the fact that we don't know how to put together the fact that we are historically formed creatures who nevertheless <laughs> seek to make our way with others and to develop freedom in relationship to how we're formed and to how we want to live in the future. It's really hard to get that across to people. And it does mean challenging certain ideas of the individual as standing outside of history or as neither fully uh, historically determined nor radically and unconditionally free as as individuals. So on the point you may um, and we've discussed this quite a lot, specifically how the right has articulated a very antagonistic position against gender. But what about from the left, right? I'm sure you were made aware of or have read Zizek's piece that was a sort of critique of wokeism and a critique of the Gender Recognition Act in Scotland. So I, I suppose my question then becomes, we're fighting on multiple fronts, aren't we? We're fighting the right and the very fascistic renditions of an anti-gender politic. But what happens when the call is somewhat coming from home? Well, I haven't read that Zizek piece. I can imagine it, but I think it would be unfair for me to comment on what I can imagine. But yes, I do know some more traditional, mainly mainly white male leftists who think of gender as a secondary phenomenon or as an ideological effect of a more fundamental set of political struggles. But I think they are simply wrong because what's happening with gender as uh, what's happening with critical race theory is that very fundamental structures of family and society, uh, ways of looking at history, ways of understanding equality, inequality, freedom, and subjugation are being revised. And this is very threatening to patriarchal orders, to the order of white supremacy, to various forms of nationalism, including Christian nationalism, which I'm starting more and more to think of as a, a terrifying force in the world. And so these challenges are precisely what the right is seizing upon. When when Putin says uh, in, in 2015, when he published a new national security policy, that gender is an attack on the spiritual values of Russia, and as such, is a national security concern, He's actually laying out, he's not just deflecting, like, oh, let's use gender to rouse the people or to you know, raise passions, excite people into states of fear and terror. Yes, he's doing that. 
But there's a reason why it incites people into fear and terror, and that is because of the way in which heteronormative family, gender hierarchy, nationalism, and its attendant racisms are all converging. And many people are frightened that the the very fundaments of their lives are being attacked by something called gender or something called critical race theory, and that if these so-called ideologies are set loose upon the world, then there will be even more radical destruction than what they are already experiencing. On the one hand, we could say, look, they're experiencing a fear of destruction because of neoliberalism or because of extractivism or because of climate catastrophe as it's unfolding in the world or because of war. Yes, hypercapitalism. Yes, all that is true. At the same time, gender and race are central to the reproduction of all of those things. They are not secondary. They are part of the reproduction of those forms of power that are destroying the world. And Bolsonaro knows that, and Orban knows that, and Trump and DeSantis all know that, and Giorgia Meloni knows that really well. And they are able to bring those things together in such a way to instill incredible fear in a public that is already experiencing fear and to focus that on migration, on queer families, on trans people getting health care, trans youth getting healthcare, all of this is destroying their world and their minds. This is, this is a way of, of not only showing how these various issues work together so that we can no longer talk about primary and secondary or tertiary oppressions. It's also a way, in my mind, of, of building authoritarian control through stoking fascist passions. And contemporary fascist passions are centered on racism and on anti-trans sentiment, and on anti-gay and lesbian rights, and on anti-feminism, quite frankly. And they are calling for a restoration of a, a sexual and racial order in which those who have profited from those orders are able to ground themselves more firmly within its terms. So we would be misunderstanding both how contemporary fascist passion is being constructed and articulated, and how authoritarian regimes are able to enhance their power through democratic elections. I mean, if it turns out Erdogan was elected democratically, and I don't know whether to trust that vote at all, but if it if he if he was legitimately elected democratically, then he he was precisely by stoking passions by calling the gay and lesbian movements terrorist or cultural terrorism that these are people who will strip you of your sexed identity. These are people who will ruin your children. These are people who will indoctrinate you or your children. All, all of this is happening now in a new formation of fascism and authoritarianism. And those on the left who want to stay with their older models are free to do so, but they will not be uh, speaking to the present. Thank you so much for that. That was really powerful. Yeah, as a kind of follow up to the problematic of considering things primary, secondary, or even tertiary. I ask this question like very humbly because this is something, you know, I'm reading and maybe trying to understand. It's kind of a question centering around ontology. And so oftentimes on the, I think on this show, like we 
highlight Marx's perspectives a lot. And in the German ideology, it is understood that what defines, you know, human or separates the human from the animal is the ability to produce one's own subsistence. And that one's social existence as like a human, it kind of rests upon that. Whereas like one thing I read in your work, both in like Undoing Gender or the various talks you give, you talk about understanding humanness through grievability. Yes. Uh, so I, 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 I just point this out because I wonder if, are there certain ontological groundings through which we understand ourselves as human that dictate certain ideological and political trajectories um, that are at times maybe the cause for disagreement amongst ourselves on the left, as Deej is getting at. Do you feel like there's, do you ever, is there is there some kind of weight to kind of these like philosophical groundings which various viewpoints are establishing? I, th- I think that's true. I mean, for instance, um, you know, I suppose you could say that there are some Lacanians, not all, but some Lacanians are those who are formed in the Lacanian tradition who take sexual difference to be quite primary. And even though they don't make strong prescriptions on the basis of that, except some do, like Jacques Alain Miller, who opposed gay marriage, uh, although many of them do not make strong prescriptions, there's a sense that gender is foreign to the vocabulary of sexual difference. I mean, I think that the anti-gender ideology movement will be against sexual difference as well, although it depends on on how it is being construed. The Vatican's complementarity thesis that I mentioned earlier is one form of sexual difference that they do accept, but that's a form that also accepts sexual hierarchy and women within the family doing certain kinds of work and what's distinctive about men who are born, uh, who are who are assigned male at birth and what's distinctive about those who are assigned uh, female at birth. Um, in other words, there's there's not much leeway there for the redefinition of sex or gender over time in the life that we live. I think that there are many ontological debates that are going on there. Some people who believe that a return to humanism is crucial. What you cite from the German ideology shows us that at least in in that passage, uh, Marx is making um, a rather strong human-animal distinction that I think many of us are not prepared to make any longer. We see humans as human creatures. We are interdependent with animals. We are ourselves animals. Uh, we're trying to understand anew where the the so-called human exists in an interdependent system of living creatures. And that's part of an important critique of anthropocentrism that is being represented perhaps most um, importantly by those who are fighting climate destruction during this time. So yes, we, we do have that. And of course, even Fanon as a thinker can be celebrated as a radical humanist, even as a Sartrean. <laughs> and others would say that, no, this is the, the death of humanism. This is the, the death of man and should be, and should be. So, you know, these are very profound debates, ontology in general as a field. There are certain post-structuralist friends of mine that just think ontology is a dirty word. And then others who are trying to come up with relational ontologies as a way of thinking through our interdependency in this world. 
trying to think about new ideas of cohabitation or equality that don't assume radical individualism or anthropocentrism. I, I guess I count myself among the latter these days. But these are about how, how we envision life and the future of life, what we are fighting for to some degree. But we can have clashing visions on that and still be against racism. We can have clashing visions on that and still be against homophobia and transphobia. We can still show up at the same meetings or the same seminars. and We can have it out with each other. Like, no, we don't read Fennel that way. We read it this way. Or, and still have a classroom, still have a university. We don't need to make final breaks with each other on issues such as those. And maybe thinking about how to be in alliance in the midst of um, uh, agonism or antagonism uh, is something that we need to re- rethink. Thank you. And Thank I, you so much I for think that. actually it's black feminism that gives us the strongest historical understanding of what it means to be in coalition with those who you don't necessarily trust with your very life, but you have to be because you're all being threatened by something even more destructive. Thank you so much. And you mentioned that Gender Trouble was published or released in 1989. My question then becomes, if you were going to write, I guess, Gender Today or Gender Trouble 2023, what some of the themes and tensions will you be speaking to? Well, I wouldn't write Gender Trouble again. That's for sure. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I'm not one of those people who stands by every word and thinks, oh, but that was like... I'm not like defending that book in in its entirety anymore. Okay. Uh, wow. You know, I don't, I'm not saying I disagree with all of it, but you know, I can go back now that I've been reading for 35 years. I, I think differently about things. I'm a living creature, you know, mm-hmm. the work doesn't, for some people, their, their published work freezes them. You know, it's like, I am the person who wrote that book and I defend that book until I die. It's like, Oh my God. <laughs> I'm, I'm like a living person, you know, for better, for worse. And my thought changes. And I have written on gender in the interim. And I just finished a book called Who's Afraid of Gender, mm-hmm. which addresses many of the issues we've been talking about today. Thank you. Uh, Christian? I guess this one's kind of a, a shot in the dark, shot in the dark, but on the topic of like what you think is relevant today. One thing that's struck me about reading Undoing Gender is you bringing up the cyborg and understanding humanness in conjunction with technology. And I guess like, you know, I, I kind of have an interest in like media studies and whatnot. And, you know, I've read some of those, te- those texts that revolve around those questions, but I guess I just kind of just a general broad question. Do you, do you think, you know, on the topic of like understanding gender today, do you feel like there's any progressions with regards to technology that change, you know, understanding of gender and sexuality, especially when it comes to, you know, the idea of the cyborg? Well, I think, in fact, that uh, Donna Haraway did some extraordinary things about the same time that I wrote Gender Trouble. And in fact, we were both at the same research institute at the time that both of us were writing, although uh, we obviously wrote different things. We we had some basic agreements as well. I think that she she cautioned way back when that we were wrong to make a nature culture distinction in feminist theory. And she, she suggested at that point that 
what we think of as the body is not just a, a natural surface on which cultural meanings are inscribed, but that they're always historically specific. And they also have their own, what she called, effectivity. They, you know, she called them material semiotic, <laughs> and she had that hyphen there. And she was clear that the boundaries of the body materialize only through social interaction, that there are no bodies as such that pre-exist their interaction with other elements, that it's only in what she calls social interaction that the, that the body assumes its boundaries. Now, that may seem like a kind of abstract idea, but in fact, it's a, it's a super important one because of the technologies involved, say, in birth. I mean, in detecting what sex is or the technologies involved sometimes in, in, in reproduction. It seems like life and technology have become coextensive. Maybe they, they always were. But I do think that technology is, an, is really important for thinking about gender and that we need to accept that. But also, you know, the media these days, I mean, I have mixed feelings about media. On the one hand, it's put so much gender queer material out there that, you know, it just runs through society and runs through fashion. And on the one hand, it's good because it's out there. On the other hand, it makes it seem like an effect of capitalism and it allows bodies to seem kind of impossibly plastic sometimes and and maybe re relieves us of a, a sense of vulnerability in the media images of bodies that are all powerful and always sexy and always athletic and always able-bodied and all of that. On the other hand, it's also through media and social media and different kinds of film and video that, that social movements have been able to make the case for themselves. I mean, even, even on Netflix, if we think about Susan Stryker and Laverne Cox in, in that documentary called Disclosure, that reached more people on the issue of trans kids than anything I know. Uh, that was the most powerful argument about why we might embrace and affirm trans kids and their ways of engaging with popular culture and thinking about who they are and trying to find image and word for their desire and their sense of body in the world. I thought that was gorgeous. Thank you so much. Professor Butler has been more than generous with their time. I'm going to wrap up the episode here. Until next time, peace out. Thank you so much once again. All right. Thank you. My pleasure.